Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's book brings to bear on some of the most powerful and helpful macro trends rippling through society today. The book teaches readers how to harness their outrage and capitalize on global trends to instigate and encourage change across the world. The author identifies five global undercurrents with outsized importance that are shaping our world. The book's lessons are supported throughout with stories, experiences, data and observations from across the globe. It is perfect for activists and leaders of all kinds who aim to increase their impact on their organizations and the world at large, as well as those who are intellectually curious who hope to increase their understanding of the changing world around them. It's a great pleasure to welcome author of Undercurrents, channeling outrage to spark practical activism, Steve Davis. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And good news for audience. I have the book here behind me. I have a copy of this beautiful book up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in with a chance to win that copy. Steve, I thought we would start with your backstory, how, how you opened the book, in fact, indeed, where a new book of your life began, the refugee camp. I thought this was fascinating, a refugee camp sprawling across a large patch of jungle in Thailand. And here you say, born and raised in small town Montana, educated at an Ivy League university, you were open to new experiences, but wildly naive and about human suffering across the globe not to mention nuanced notions of justice, dignity, and grace. So you find yourself in a territory where you were ill-equipped to navigate, but this gave you new lenses through which to observe the world. I'd love if you started here, Steve. Thanks, Aidan, for, uh, for, again, having me and also letting me tell a bit of my story, but also talk about the trends in global activism that um, we're living with every day and I'm working with. So, yeah, I was... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm American, obviously, uh, was uh, somewhat lucky in the sense that I was born in a, and raised in a very small ranching community in rural Montana um, and ended up uh, in an Ivy League school. I went to Princeton undergraduate and then got a, a, a scholarship to go and or fellowship to go teach and work in Asia. And along the way, took some time, you know, as the classic young adventure and, and bought cheap bus tickets and found some friends and we kind of adventured all over Southeast Asia, including visiting a friend in a refugee camp at the time. And this was um, in Northern Thailand. It was in the uh, early 80s, uh, 1980, and, and where the remnants of the Southeast Asia war uh, were still very alive. Uh, a lot of refugees and a lot of um, uh, work uh, to support people that had fleed the killing fields of Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos. And I went there with some anticipation that this, what was this going to be like? And, you know, how did we end up here? But um, the thing that happened that I write about is I uh, kind of in an awkward sort of, what do you do here? Uh, to that We are visiting a friend of a friend. I ended up not only um, observing a lot of the processes of, 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 of refugees applying for refugee status and watching how all that happened and getting a real insight into, uh, okay, there's sort of this random set of processes in the world that actually end up adjudicating whether someone can, uh, you know, to change, uh, pursue their ambitions or not in terms of uh, finding new homes. Or, and I also had a kind of fun uh, soccer game where I just kind of did a pickup soccer game with some of the kids in the, in the camp. And, you know, I did that with that kind of arrogance of an American coming in thinking, okay, I'm so lucky. And these kids are, have, have been victims of such a horrible situation, which was true, but, you know, in talking to them, they were confident, they were, um, inspired, they were inspiring, and and they actually didn't see themselves as victims, but saw themselves um, as my equal. And I, it, it really was a moment to remind myself and start learning the thoughts about, okay, how does the globe work? Um, what do I need to do to be uh, supportive of people in the world that have faced injustice or have faced, um, you know, horrible discrimination or humanitarian issues, but also do it in a way that is not uh, 
patriarchal or not uh, uh, um, presumptive of my privilege, but also recognizing their agency and their courage and their their ability to 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 forge their own future and and that shaped my whole career that experience this was the the moment that your approach to activism took root so it started to blossom and it blossomed into the beautiful approach that you call practical activism i'd love for you to explain what that was maybe tying it back to the story a little bit is um sort of watching a, a lot of the behind the scenes business of supporting this humanitarian crisis and helping these refugees resettle which I ended up, frankly, doing for the next decade of my life or so, very involved in refugee issues and human rights issues and refugee resettlement. But um, what I I, what I observed there that it you know while there were sort of the highly visible champions of refugee rights or the the large um, you know kind of live aid programs to support humanitarian crises um, that. A lot of the work uh, of of supporting, helping, and providing um, solutions is kind of the uh, modest, invisible, uh, and and what I end up calling practical work of activism. So, one of the things that I uh, have observed over the last forty years of being involved in a lot of social activism and a lot of issues is that we have oriented a lot towards celebrity activism, and that's good. They bring attention to an issue. They uh, usually bring money to an issue. And so we celebrate, you know, the celebrity philanthropists, the celebrity uh, social entrepreneurs, and they are doing great things or the people that are making a lot of voice in the streets, which, again, I, I say in the book is super important as part of our uh, uh, the, the advocacy for social change. But what I observe there and I have observed ever since is that actually a lot of the real work lies in this sort of incremental business of slogging through social change, building teams, uh, getting legislation passed, uh, building ca capacity to support people. So I think that we need to start focusing more on what I call practical activists or practical activism and giving more people uh, the courage to get involved, even in small incremental ways, using skills they have or they might use in their day job uh, toward social issues. And so I'm, I'm a big advocate of everybody has a role to play and everybody can play a role and it doesn't have to be you know, your life work and it doesn't have to be highly uh, visible and it doesn't have to be um, highly kind of breakthrough innovation. It can just take some small steps and we can keep changing the world. I love the way, Steve, you explain it and you describe it and building from the community up and teaching a man to fish rather than fishing for them. And I thought that was a lovely way to th think about what we talk about on the show a lot, which is innovation and change management within organizations. It's the same thing. It's giving people the tools to do it for themselves rather than bringing in the consultants and telling them how it's done that they build that own capability. And, and I just wanted to plant that seed for those listeners who are listening to the show to hear it through that those ears as well. But let's shift to the magnificent title. I love the title Undercurrents, which you tell us refers to the deep and mighty tides invisible to a person navigating on the surface of an ocean. Undercurrents do not always flow in the same direction as the waves on top. Indeed, sometimes these underwater water channels can pull us backwards but often they surge forwards, propelling the way the water drifts, or landscapes form, or social changes move. I loved what you said there. But what about undercurrents in the context of the book itself? I struggled with the title a bit because what I was really trying to get to, or what are these big megatrends in social activism that we should be aware of? Um, and, and, and I decided that... Um, uh, to kind of use a, a larger water metaphor uh, and and so landed on undercurrents, which I, I've actually really enjoyed uh, working with then for the last year. Um, it, it, let me back up a, get, a bit on sort of why I wrote the book and then that will explain a bit why I, I chose undercurrents is I've been uh, doing a lot of things, running a very large NGO. I teach at Stanford in the social innovation work. I, I've been involved in lots of social activism and corporate activism. I, I'm very involved in business and society issues too. And I've noticed over the last several years this sort of d growing despair um, uh, that you know there's so much not working well in the world and so many issues. Um, and and um, 
And people are beginning to be more paralyzed and outraged. And of course, part of it was written during the Trump years in the United States, but it was broader than that, the outrage and, and the, you know, but people were like thinking that their approach to the outrage was either cynicism or negative, you know, uh, being negative, or, you know, you like something on Facebook, which isn't really helping much. Um, so I um, thought, started thinking about that problem and, and recognizing that on the one hand, and I could feel it and see it myself. But on the other hand, when I sort of looked at the facts and the data and the literature, that there's actually a lot of very positive trends that are, um, that are happening in the world that we're either not paying attention to or have somehow got lost in the narrative. The, you know, the fact that we've reduced child mortality and morbidity over the last, uh, mortality over the last 40 years by half in the world, or that fact is most people are living better than they did 10 years ago. And this, this set of trends, uh, and that well, well documented, um, has, has, you know, sort of, we've lost the, the reality. And there are some great books on it, Factfulness uh, uh, and some others are, are really establishing that set of data. But I thought, well, okay, so there are these underlying trends that are pretty powerful and they are actually pulling us forward in a positive way. But we might, and, and for people to feel more confident to get out of their paralysis and to channel their outrage, maybe they could be building, you know, kind of riding one of these waves, if you will, and, and, and jumping on those. I've done that a few times in my own life, riding some waves. And so I, I, uh, of, of social change that I've been a part of, but then that's actually propelled me forward. So I felt like uh, describing some of these trends that I've seen or observed or studied um, would be maybe a useful way for people to build more optimism and build more confidence. So the undercurrents became the sort of the metaphor, uh, starting with my uh, childhood role as the irrigator on our ranch, and working <laughs> with that. water all the way to today, where I still see these undercurrents playing out, even in the context of, of the trends we've seen uh, beneath the COVID-19 crisis in the last year. Before we go into those undercurrents and what they are, Steve, I think it's important to highlight that you are no Pollyanna at all. You've seen from the coalface how difficult this is. And there is real cause for outrage, you say. And the obstacles we face, whether confronting growing race-based disparities, eco economic inequality, political corruption, or climate change, are enormous. But your aim here is to help turn the frustration into optimism and ideally practical activism. Again, this is rooted in your own history. As a gay man, you say, the journey of coming out is never over. And you've spent much of your time channeling that early shame into personal, political, and community transformation. I think that's really important because you have the scar tissue of experience and this work and these thoughts have come from there. Thanks, Aiden. And, and yeah, I, I build, uh, first of all, build the metaphor a bit around some of the undercurrents of my own personal life uh, and and th that journey sort of setting up the, 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 the idea, including, you know, the last 40 years uh, riding the wave or the current around the gay rights and gay activism and being active. I was also an early participant in the uh, digital revolution and have been sort of engaged in that. I was an early person uh, going to China way back in the 70s and, 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 and currently run the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's China office. So you can see that I've been writing that amazing change in the world, complicated and very politically charged, but nonetheless amazing. Uh, so those are the, the trends that I've, I've actually been um, writing myself uh, or, or, or observing and engaging with myself. And so that actually gave me more um, uh, sort of confidence about, okay, what are the emerging trends for the next generation? But, but they are trends that are not based in, you know, like that you shouldn't be, I'm not making the argument at all that you shouldn't be outraged or that, uh, that they're not real serious, complicated issues that some may even be existential if we're not, if we're not smart, but, but hopefully, you know, the collective wisdom, the collective energy, practical action uh, acts will help us, uh, mitigate their, their, their damage and continue this trend of the world getting over time with some back, you know, back and forth over time, the arc of, you know, moral, it, it tends toward uh, 
positive. The, you know, the great Martin Luther King line I, I quote in the book, which is, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long um, and bends in the right direction. You mentioned China there, Steve. You spent a lot of time over in China. And China's kind of got a bad rap in the West recently. And we tend to think of those countries as some way backward because of the way they used to be. They were underdeveloped. But you highlight about China. China is within reach of eliminating chronic poverty from its population of 1.5 billion people after fighting some 30 million cases of malaria and facing down more than 30,000 deaths each year through the mid 20th century. China is now on the verge of becoming declared malaria free by the WHO. Who can ignore that type of progress, you say? We need to pay attention to that type of progress. This is good news throughout the world. But what can we learn from a country that has brought more people into the middle class faster than any other in human history? I think there's lessons in there, and I'd love if you share your thoughts. This is uh, something I spend a lot of my time on currently, is how do we continue to um, uh, work and collaborate with partners in China, whether that's, you know, academic partners, NGOs, companies, governments, um, and how do we um, learn from China as well as help support China's own development efforts? You know, even since I wrote those words in that book, uh, in the book, uh, you know, this year, China in 2021, China will be actually declared malaria free by WHO in the next month. And uh, now it's a little bit complicated, but President Xi of China has uh, declared that their poverty alleviation program is uh, fundamentally over because, you know, the sort of people have they have moved enough people out of dire poverty. Now, it's a little tricky, that one, because all depends on your definition and it's highly political but nonetheless the the uh, so you can sort of go down that rat hole of what what do they really mean and are they being honest but on the other hand the bottom line is that, that there's been an enormous progress around uh, 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 combating acute poverty in China and and so I'm I'm uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm uh, Certainly not Pollyannish, and I and I actually would even say um, I'm a very cautious optimist about uh, about China and the in the world uh, development today. We have, um, uh, but but I do think that we uh, ignore China at our peril in any kind of work around uh, development or uh, global. Uh, issues. I mean, we can't ignore China. It's uh, will eventually be the largest uh, economy by gross GDP, not GDP per capita, but um, probably by the end of this decade. It's it's um, innovation capabilities are immense. It's uh, political commitments to other parts of the world are immense, as are ours, as are you know people in in the UK or Ireland or 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 the US. So um, so I I keep trying to figure out how we support China's efforts uh, in a collaborative manner, but also not being, um, uh, I'm, I've been trained as a human rights lawyer. My first uh, public uh, publication was on the death penalty in China. So I'm certainly not taking this from a, you know, a, a view that they're not serious issues that have to also be uh, addressed in any of these uh, conversations. But I'm, I'm actually, um, I think COVID will have, uh, you know, despite the, the very complex discussions about the origins uh, uh, is, is, is been, will be a eventually kind of a turning point, I think, in how uh, we see China engage in the world, but also how China recognizes its own engagement uh, uh, in the bilateral and, and multilateral community. As we'll find out, COVID has been an accelerant for many of these undercurrents that you talked about. So let's dive into those undercurrents. You say each of the undercurrents discussed in the book represents a macro trend that you believe is vigorous, intractable and generally positive for a collective pursuit of improving the world. So let's dive in and excuse the pun diving into the undercurrent. The first one is pyramid to diamond. I love the concept of this, the mental model this produces, but also the great stories you share here. This one, I think, is um, one of these wildly uh, important but often misunderstood uh, phenomena that's going on in the world that is really built on demography. Um, and this is the idea that when we, we have established over the last several decades a metaphor 
uh, around the socioeconomic structure of the world, that it's a, a pyramid. And you, you, you know, with a very small uh, number of people living, uh, uh, their socioeconomic status, usually measured in, in, in income or wealth, or living at the top of that, as, as a small band at the top. And then the, the bulk of the world is very much stuck in the bottom of the pyramid. And so we talk about bottom of the pyramid, base of the pyramid programs all the time. And that's been the way it's truly reflected in the way the world's been structured. But what's been dynamic in the last 10 to 15 years is the number of people that were moving from uh, the bottom of that pyramid in acute poverty. And again, China has a lot to do with this, with the big numbers, but also India, Nigeria, Ethiopia, a lot of other parts of the world. People have been moving into the middle class at an enormous rate, uh, as defined by World Bank and other standards. So, in fact, today, the bulk of the people in the world live in the demographic middle of that uh, that sort of structure. And it now looks more like a pyramid um, uh, where there's sort of, I say, a squatty pyramid because there's still more at the bottom than the top. But it is really fewer people living at the very, very bottom. And so when you think about the pyramid, it has a whole bunch of implications. One is that it's a trend that will keep continuing, even though I think in COVID we've seen a setback. There's you know, emerging data that we're going to pop back from that at, over time. And, and that may not be as disruptive, but it's certainly a notable um, issue. But this is a probably intractable trend going forward. Two, what it means is that so many people are now not living in dire poverty, that they're becoming part of what is a low income, but consumer class. And so this gives you more opportunity in the world of development and health to think about commercial, you know, high volume, low cost commercial opportunities for entrepreneurs and businesses to engage in the development uh, work and for development people like myself to engage in companies to help support that, um, those, uh, which is a great thing. I think that it's incapable in giving even more capability for people to move from beneficiaries of aid to actually consumers of, of products and services that support their well-being. What it also means though, is the distinction between the top and the bottom have gotten quite acute. So the, in fact, in this in this or, or current diamond, the top of the diamond has gotten almost this tiny little spike that goes way up because it's so few people have so much wealth. I'm not focused on that as much, although that's a huge problem in the world. I'm also focused on the fact that at the bottom, we have fewer people at the very bottom, and they're usually, you know, in, in difficult situations coming out of conflict or humanitarian crisis or, or, um, or, or static poverty conditions. But, um, but what is interesting is those people at the very bottom today are often living in middle-income countries. So um, I think that means, and I guess this is sort of the um, ultimate uh, kind of the, the bottom line of this chapter is that, um, that we need to think about less about a global health and development and global development architecture built around countries and poor countries, which is the way it was architected really in the post-war, post-colonial period of the late 20th century, to really focusing on communities in different countries. And some of those are communities in countries uh, even like uh, our own um, uh, in Europe and the United States where there, so uh, I think that really shifts uh, the, the conversation and it's an important trend that's very positive. I mean, this is all means that we're get, you know, we're we're finding momentum. The economic growth in and of itself is providing momentum to pull people out of uh, dire poverty and bad health. But we uh, now have to reorient ourselves toward local communities, toward more business solutions, and and toward um, you know continuing to help people come up that uh, that ladder. One of the things you mentioned, Steve, and something I found really interesting for our audience is for those of our listeners in leadership roles or innovation or change or social innovation roles, you have a very diverse experience in many, many different companies. You worked in social innovation for McKinsey, you worked in leadership roles in corporate organizations, etc. And I thought it'd be great to share something for those, those of our listeners who are in such roles. Because you've spent much of your career in the for-profit world, running a tech company and serving on the boards of several multinational corporations. So you know well what you call the tug-of-war discussions between an emphasis on profit and the simultaneous interest in social impact between shareholders and any other kind of stakeholder. 
I thought that was really interesting, something I'd love that we could dive into a little bit more. It's a huge topic, Aiden, and I I, uh, I appreciate that your listeners are keenly interested in this, and because I think this gets into this uh, changing thinking about the role of business in society writ large, and um, and and the logical and inevitable tensions that uh, we're gonna we have to continue to wrestle with. I, I think there's frankly, a lot of naivete about, you know, how business should behave in society, you know, given their, their mandate and their, 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 I mean, I've run businesses, they're not easy to run and, you know, keeping, keeping, uh, you know, that, uh, that engine working with, uh, to ensure that there's enough at the bottom line to make this sustainable is a critical uh, and difficult thing for a lot of companies. But what I, what I've um, observed is, I'd say two things. One is that I think in an increasing understanding, and I think we're seeing more evidence and literature on this, is that most of the biggest challenges in the world um, that we have to solve, either at the global level or at the national level, or at the regional or local level, are gonna, not going to be solved by one sector alone. That, and I think about the public sector, government, uh, the private sector, business of all types, and and the social sector, which is philanthropic institutions, nonprofits, academic research institutions, all three of those are in, are going to be important to be engaged. So we've got, so the sort of the, the punchline of, of the overall book is we've got to be working on these multi-sectoral partnerships more and more. And, and I think more and more businesses of all types are big, being willing to engage and participate in those. But I think the, the real work of social innovation over the next decade is going to be managing, enabling, putting together uh, these sub, these complex partnerships, and they're not easy to manage. But that's that's one of the things. The second is, um, I do think that there is more um, possibility than probably ever before for corporate activism. And, uh, you know, that's a word that scares a lot of people. I've written about this lately that, you know, corporate activism, people get nervous. It's an unhappy shareholder. It's, a, you know, it's somebody protesting within the company or out on the street in front of the company. And, and, and I don't mean in those ways, although there's nothing, again, I don't have any criticism of that kind of activism. But what I'm saying is there's more and more requirement for businesses of all types to um, uh, as a license to do business in their community or their country to have some piece of the social agenda as part of their, there's more, you know, corporate social responsibility requirements in the many parts of the world. There's more understanding of what's called, you know, increasingly stakeholder capitalism that there are multiple stakeholders. So I think there's a very right moment, uh, for, for this, uh, that, you know, that is part of this, this first pyramid to diamond trim, but is for, um, more and more, uh, uh, engagement, somewhat driven by the next generation of employees, somewhat driven by uh, the social agenda. We've certainly seen it here in the United States, driven around the, um, the racial inequity issues and COVID, the sort of requirements of business to get hands-on on, on, on some of these emerging social issues in ways that we haven't seen before. So that's, that's, that's I think, a very positive step. And I think there's ways that people can find, uh, employees or of, of companies can find ways more now than ever, whether it's sorting, so supporting some philanthropic effort, you know, using their, their role or skills at work to do certain things in the community, or just being a voice for their company. I think there are more and more uh, um, opportunities for the, for social activists in corporations in the future. One, one of the things I found so fascinating about the book was if you think about the work and the places you worked, the work that you've done, a lot of those countries had to leapfrog technologies because they didn't have the infrastructure to do that. So they may have jumped straight to mobile, for example, mobile payments, whatever it might be, mobile lending. And I think there's huge lessons for established organizations in that because if they look to that, those places that have leapfrogged their technology infrastructures, they can actually look to the future, but they can also change their own mindsets about how business can be done. And I love the examples you give throughout the book, the book is peppered with fantastic examples. One of them you talk about, and a great example of growing markets at the bottom of the pyramid, very evident in brilliant programs such as Africa's One Acre Fund, which offers $80, a bundle of services, including quality seeds, fertilizer, tutorials on modern ad agriculture techniques, 
and training on market fluctuations to small farmers on credit. I thought that was brilliant because this is the truly the spirit of enabling those people, giving them the capabilities to grow their own marketplaces. And then we're actually making money from that as well, but less, albeit, but also changing the world as a result. One Acre Fund is a is a, a, a great example. There are many, many like it, honestly, of more of these sort of entrepreneurial efforts that are figuring out uh, packages of services uh, or packages of products that are appropriate for those markets, affordable, often with sort of aggregated demand and other tools that, to get there. I've, I mean, one of the fun things I get to do uh, every year is I'm, uh, as I mentioned, I, I t- have taught and in social innovation curriculum at Stanford. Uh, and in fact, I just finished my class, uh, last class uh, last week and uh, for the year. And the number of ideas being percolated and generated around very much uh, designing products and services for low resource communities, but with a view that they will be um, sustainable from a business perspective because they will generate enough return to keep reinvesting in the product and service, which is critical. Um, and and you know th- addressing all sorts of issues from ways to reach kids who have less access to education to addressing you know simple problems that we don't think about but uh, often but you know everything from uh, getting better toilets around the world or working on in some parts to um, uh, and making that a, a sustainable business to um, uh, designing uh, products to um, uh, to 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 address uh, in COVID, you know, mental health uh, in communities that don't have access to mental health uh, clinicians. I, I I'm I'm quite excited by that uh, that innovation, and we're really seeing it start to scale up. So so I think that's actually important as well. You, you've made me jump ahead here because you, you made me remember a great innovation that came, and where you were the enabler, your team were the enabler of this innovation where it was using the condoms filled with water to stem bleeding. This was a fascinating story and a great case study in how you can harness the power of the crowd to build a very useful and meaningful product. This gets really down, and I know you've covered before, but this whole idea of human-centered design and how we need to spend more time in cracking some of these big problems uh, now, l- watching and listening to focus uh, and really focus where the innovation comes from the communities that need it, because more often than not, in my experience, and having spent a lot of time in rural Africa and rural Asia and 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 in really dire communities of need, that someone has solved a problem in a... but unfortunately, in kind of an unsustainable or inadequate way, because they didn't have the resources or the tool to really make it work, but they figured it out. I, a wonderful story I always tell in addition to the to the sort of the, the condom project or the, this was actually a, called the uterine balloon tamponade, and it's really to prevent bleeding after birth, which is a still a very, very few people in the rich countries die of that, but in poor countries, it's still a high reason for maternal mortality. And, and observing how, you know, nurses and midwives jerry-rigged with a condom, a way to do that. And so we created a more sustainable, hygienic, very low-cost product manufactured in Africa, in, in, in South Africa, but for, for, for making that uh, solution more accessible, but also, frankly, a better product because it also was sort of we also while it was designed with the community and the midwives in mind we also brought gynecologists and others in to help us make sure it was designed correctly um uh, another story i and actually is also interestingly uh, uh it was a township a very very poor township in south africa but remember uh we were in a very very uh poor uh hospital and this very crusty old nurse was running the hospital (laughs) and she uh was no nonsense and um and she was uh and and they have a high level of maternal and child mortality in this hospital often uh, the women were getting to the clinic in time etc they were observing all these challenges um in this clinic and yet she had and so she was showing me the logbook 
uh, when I was visiting. And it, the logbook had, you know, this government issued logbook, which is pretty much, you know, still in all in writing, handwriting. Um, but it was, you know, here's just three or four factoids about each patient. So you could see what she had done is drawn about eight or 10 more lines by herself and was filling out more data on each of these women. And I said, well, why did you do that? She said, well, this is important information for me to know, but the government doesn't really care. So we usually don't record it. And so I said, well, why doesn't we help you take that idea to the government? And, and because she was actually innovating the data needs around taking care of women in this poor community that the government wasn't addressing. And so, uh, you know, long story short is her own innovation, we could help translate into, frankly, uh, over time, a change. And so all the government logbooks, uh, and now hopefully digitally, um, and contain a lot more uh, categories for data to manage services better. So I think, you know, it's just a constant reminder of where innovation really comes from, and how we need to listen to it and observe it, but also then think about how can we scale that up or how can we make it more effective or efficient uh using some some uh, additional resources and you've you've set me up beautifully here it's not in sequence of the undercurrents but the, you mentioned here that pro that project and that is moving to digital disruption and embracing digital disruption and you say data and digital tools will continue to bring valuable new capabilities to our world revolutioning er, revolutionizing everything from healthcare to education to conservation and I love the brilliant example you give of the disease tracking nerve center in the DRC. I'd love if you had told us about this. To your point, one of the five big undercurrents is that I include that I hope give people more optimism and opportunity for engaging in, in community activism is, is the digital uh, revolution itself. And some people are like, well, why would you, this, like, it's been going on for, there's nothing new about it. Why are you mentioning it? It seems like kind of a, a duh. And, and I said, <laughs> well, for two reasons. Number one, I, I think it's uh, kind of a hidden current sometimes that's incredibly powerful, again, in this undercurrent idea. But also, um, I, the social sector has been a little slow to, to get the memo, honestly. I mean, we've been, we we're, so we need to put more energy there. And I think there's also a tendency in the social sector um, to to talk a lot about the negative issues in 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 the digital revolution, and there are, I mean, concerns about privacy, concerns about the digital divide, uh, and and I I I and you know, so my work is a lot now on how do we support addressing those. I I co-chair the. Uh, World Health Organization's digital health technical advisory group. So, you know, how do we actually address some of these policy and 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 inequity issues? But my my bottom line is net net. It's an incredibly positive trend, and we've got to learn how to mitigate some of these challenges. And and um, and uh, and I've seen it up front for, uh, in communities around the world. So we do uh, the organization PATH, which I used to run, and it's a large global health innovation group, uh, NGO. But we've done a lot of work in very poor, very chronically corrupt. It's a very difficult country to work in, but and a lot of political challenges, but in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Central Africa. And in the DRC, you know, which is where the source of several of these outbreak diseases, not, you know, specifically Ebola recently have come from. So we helped with the support of the US government and others, a, a set up an emergency operations center. And, you know, it's kind of rudimentary compared to what you would see in the CDC in Atlanta or something, but it was nonetheless a kind of a nerve, you know, to you say, to your point, a nerve center for getting data from around the country so we can start tracking and tracing, you know, outbreaks and responses. And, 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 then, and so being there and watching how much, I mean, the big trick there is measure, the measurement of success is from the time we observe an outbreak to the time we're able to, from the time we think an outbreak started to the time we're able to actually observe it and do something about it, you know, we've reduced that time quite a bit in many communities. Now, you know, there's exceptions, COVID complicates the story, but to, 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 to know, you know, that a cholera outbreak is occurring faster is the real trick to addressing that problem. And, and these, these nerve centers are effectively doing that. So I'm, uh, and so that's just one example of many, many, many of the power of digital and data uh, transformation on, on global health and development. And there's some great examples in the book, Steve, and I'm going to come back now and try to get back into the chronological order. 
communities are the customer. I love this because you share here, what does it mean to be a community centered? Because many of our listeners work in organizational change, as I said, and I believe there are so many similarities here to community centered change. In the book, you give a brilliant example, once again, that of PEPFAR. This was, frankly, the hardest chapter to write uh, because um, I think it's going to be the hardest. Uh, I think it's happening. I think it is an actual megatrend that's very much happening, but it's uh, it's going to come uh, the the actual uh, changes that it is provoking will be hard to deliver. So what I mean is we have, uh, it sort of gets back to what I was saying earlier that we developed a lot of the social sector and particularly the global health and development sector, but it's true in other areas as well around the um, kind of a post-colonial post-war world where, you know, there were the winners and the losers, but there was also the haves and the have-nots pretty much divided by the global North and global South at the time, words I don't usually use now, but but and so a lot of the interventions were very much outside in. You know, we needed somebody to come in and help here, come in and design. And they were being uh, developed and designed in uh, in places like Washington and London and Geneva and, and Beijing and not not, you know, in the communities that they were trying to serve. And they saved a lot of lives and they did a lot of good things. So I'm not I'm not criticizing that effort. What I'm saying is now in most of those communities, with the exception of acute humanitarian crises, natural disasters, there is uh, there are not that many fragile states. And there are more there's more and more real capacity in communities around the world to uh, with agency now to address their own problems to, 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 to create their own solutions, to innovate their own problems. And so that tilt uh, from being sort of outside in to inside out is going to, is, is a very big uh, opportunity. It's going to not, it's going to come with some challenges, but it's a big opportunity that I think is one of these trends that I hope social activists for tomorrow will, will, will ride. Um, and it, and so I use the PEPFAR example again, uh, without any uh, criticism of the enormous impact it's had, which is the pr- U.S. Uh, presidential um, uh, 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 effort to, for AIDS relief, which um, came out of the George W. Bush administration and is seen as one of the most successful uh, in terms of sheer impact. And it kind of was timed, in, interestingly, well, with the advent of ARV. So it happens kind of at the right time. But but it's very much driven, you know, micromanaged out of Washington, D.C., and, it, you know, every uh, and I've worked on it with PEPFAR and PEPFAR programs around the world and seeing how often tone deaf it is to the local communities, the local needs and the local agency. And I think uh, my own view is that those kind of programs, while they're maybe there's an efficiency and they're certainly, you know, what really matters for them is there's more accountability to the U.S., you know, government stakeholder, but they're going to be deemed as less and less efficient over time, that communities are going to want to develop and, and, and support their own uh, solutions. So I've taken kind of a corporate McKinsey uh, tone to this chapter, which is, I, you know, when we talk about who are our customers in, um, in, in, in business and how value is created at the customer level that, you know, we've got obsessed on our customers, et cetera. In the social sector, I started advocating this idea that our customers are, are, are the community and, and community can be defined broadly, you know, it could be at a country level or at a community level, but rather than our customers are our donors, our customers are investors. That's not how business thinks of customers. It's, it's, uh, it's the, it's the community. And, and, and interestingly, it's not, not necessarily the individual child or mother beneficiary, um, that a lot of the work we do for systemic reasons needs to be addressed at a community level. And so I think that pivot is really exciting. It means more and more engagement, more and more energy and ideas, entrepreneurism. And I see it every day from communities around the world and more and more programs are more effective if they're designed that way. 
But it also means at, that um, existing structures are going to have to change. Uh, and so large government programs, philanthropies, you know, really are rethinking how they have to operate. There's a whole movement about the decolonization of global health and development. That's part of this, this trend. There's a, you know, much more around human-centered and community-centered design, as we were just talking about. That's part of this trend. So I, I think it's an exciting trend, but it, it has a lot to do with money and power. So it's going to be hard to see it realized. That's a fascinating one for me. I reading your work, I was like going, this guy has so much experience in the corporate world and in social innovation and in community work. Yet, when you brought new ideas to some of those established organizations, they were often rejected. In particular, your concept of country as customer. I was flabbergasted by that. And it will mean so much to our audience who are change makers within their own organization to understand that when you're rejected for a new idea, it's perfectly natural. It happens to everyone. It happens to the best of us. And it happens in the biggest organizations, even the most advanced ones. I'd love if you'd give us your 10 cents on this. Yeah, there's a lot of good work on failing forward. And, and, and I think coming out of the tech community, where I spent quite a bit of time, uh, yeah, I think we see that the and we embrace disruption. We embrace, you know, uh, uh, generally uh, incremental, uh, knowing that, you know, one out of 10 things fail sort of thing. That's harder as you get into big, you know, well-funded uh, organizations. And, and, and so I think we're going to, um, you know, have to, and this, I'm not saying anything new here at all, but, you know, have to figure out how to uh, not, not to be accountable. I think people get this mixed up with, accountability towards, you know, fiscal accountability or accountable for outcomes. But, but at the same time, understanding that we're doing in the social sector, particularly, we're often addressing things that are, have been unaddressable because of market failure or, you know, government or policy failure. There's that. So we're already tackling often these large things that market businesses and governments have failed to be able to do it on their own. So we're going to have to take more risk and with more risk means more failure and, 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 and then learn from that failure. And I think the real trick is uh, embracing, I mean, learning from the failure and not, not lowering your standards. So failure becomes a norm in its own sake, but failure becomes uh, a, a, a piece of a, like a, a performance indicator of your uh, risk-taking and your innovation. Um, but it is true. I, I, you know, didn't really talk about this in this book, but I've written about it before is, you know, that it is a, it's a muscle you have to learn to build and, and, and maybe I'm using the wrong body part because more it's <laughs> thicker, th thicker skin that you have to develop around, you know, that rejection is just part of this game. And, and, uh, whether you're pitching ideas, whether you're looking for money, whether you're competing uh, for products. I mean, it is a, a and, and uh, it's, it's definitely um, uh, the big social change is, is, uh, is, is not for wimps. Uh, you know, you, you gotta, you, and, and, and I, I remembered, um, you know, I have a quote in my other office, but where it's, 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 you know, that you don't see, uh, you, you want to be liked and you want to be, uh, respected in order to build alliances and to create partnerships and to make the case for change. I mean, I do a lot of lobbying on, in governments around the world and you got to go in and know how to play that game and, and appeal. But ultimately, a lot of the biggest social change does not happen with because you made a lot of, you know, you, you make quite a few enemies to make a lot of change happen or not enemies, but you make a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things uh, change makers have to keep reminding themselves that it's okay if you've made people uncomfortable. Brilliant, Steve. That will mean a lot to so many people listening to the show. We've two more undercurrents, and I'd love to get through even at a top level. One, which is will surprise so many is that what well, surpri surprised so many men in the Western world, because they think we're seeing more and more equity. But that's not the case at all. And you I'll tee you up beautifully here with this wonderful quote by Winnie Bayanamina, but I butchered her name, by Winnie Bayanima, who said, without women's equal access to positions of decision making power and a clear process to get there, gender equality, global security, and peace will never be realized. Be realized. 
You remind us that imbalances between the status of women and men stretch well beyond health indicators in poor countries. The World Economic Forum projects that globally, it will take 99 years to achieve parity between the genders in political representation, workplace opportunities and access to education. Women are 40% more likely to suffer severe injuries in car crashes, likely to because seats, seat belts and airbags are designed primarily by men, though it's hard to say for sure because no one has bothered to ever research why. I thought that spoke absolute volumes and perhaps you'll give us your, your comments on this because you see this across the world, all over, Western world, Eastern world, everywhere. Thanks. Uh, and, and, and yeah, the third trend I talk about, which again, I think is uh, uh, one of those uh, kind of uh, on the surface, everybody sees it, but uh, the, the larger undercurrent that's pow uh, powering change is one I think deserves a lot more focus and attention is what I talk about is the, 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 the role of equity in, in, in community and social development and social activism. And, and obviously it's another one of these tricky ones because, um, you know, a lot of social activism been built around equity, like, you know, whether it's civil rights work we've done around, you know, like the work I was doing on gay rights or other things. But I do think we've reached a different moment again, where we're actually having a very conscious set of conversations, not just in, you know, kind of privileged institutions in the global north, but around the world about what it means to have to truly develop equity uh, as a principle. And so social activism will, I think, forever more be filtered through the lens of equity. And that's gender equity uh, is what I wrote mainly about. But I think it also gets into racial equity, tribal issues. There's a variety of, uh, of dimensions of this. Um, and, and, you know, that, and it goes without saying many people a lot smarter than I am have been writing a lot about why and how this is coming about, will it be sustainable, et cetera. But even in sort of social activism and community development, it is, it is, we have gone through a decade of issues, whether it's, uh, you know, some of the challenges that the Charity Commission in the UK have seen with some of their local NGOs or or uh, the, you know, the impact of Black Lives Matter on, on U.S. charities or some of the decolonization discussions happening around uh, the world, that we are no longer in a, a place where we're going to assume that, um, you know, the, the old rules apply where people like me are in charge all the time and, and look like me are in charge all the time. And so I think this is another extraordinarily incredible trend. And it has all sorts of these ramifications. So yes, it's political at the top. It's about who's at the government table, who's at the leadership table, which is what Winnie was, who's a, an amazing leader was writing about. But but it also gets into even the more practical things that I actually like to focus on, you know, like what data do we collect? And and who, how do we develop the clinical trials? And who are we, um, who are we, um, you know, getting when we do these observations uh, and human-centered observations, are we really being conscious of not just gender balance, but have we thought about, you know, different uh, uh, difficult-to-reach communities and how we're actually addressing them? So I, I think this is a very exciting field. I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what it means in the innovation community. The innovation community tends to still glamorize, you know, the, 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 the great things that white men around the world do. And we need and a lot of the innovation community in the traditional sense is run by rich white men. So we're going to have a lot of work to do to change this. But um, but I, I'm excited to um, kind of, uh, and I'm spending a lot of my time trying to step back and help support people uh, now in front of me who are look very different than me, but also are brilliant and thinking about great ways to change the world. So I, I just think it's a great uh, time for this. I think it's going to be painful. And I actually don't think it's going to, uh, I'm having done a lot of civil rights work it's not going to be straightforward. You know, we're going to two steps forward, one step backwards all the time. But uh, that's where we are. And Steve, I have to admit, you know, I, I have a huge interest in this, but I get it wrong a lot of the time because I, I, I don't know what it's like to walk the, in, the, yeah. in the moccasins of another person. But I do try and, I, and I'll make mistakes as well. And I think that's the, that's the really interesting thing, which teases up next for the final one. We covered moving to dis digital disruption when we talked about the DRC. But let's move to the surprisingly sexy middle. And this is uh, where it's messy in the middle always. And you say adapting and scaling innovations for widespread impact. 
the complex middleware that has often been ignored as one of the less glamorous aspects of social change is becoming more and more important and surprisingly more sexy. I'd love if you took us through this as the final undercurrent. Thanks, Aidan. And, and, and I'm biased on this one because this is, in fact, what I specifically teach at Stanford. But but yeah, I think that we've seen a lot of new energy. I mean, you know, look at what your show is about, you know, innovation and new ideas, a lot of investments into early stage startups, into even social impact design startups. And, and we, so we've, we, we, we are doing a lot of good work celebrating and investing in social entrepreneurs. I mean, there's always need for more, but, um, and we've also done some sort of focusing on the last mile. What, what I focus on is the journey between that garage and the last mile. And, and that is a long and complicated journey. And we still, I mean, the data is astounding how many great ideas that have proven efficacy or proven impact can't are not getting to the number or the people that need them. And that's because the middle of the value chain, this unsexy part that I talk about that I'm trying to make more sexy <laughs> is, is, isn't very sexy. It's, it's a lot of, but it's very practical stuff. It's, you know, adapting, it's building a business model. It's going out and seeking investors. It's, it's getting a regulatory approval. It's, you know, building a marketing campaign. It's, you know, going in the slog of day-to-day -day kind of business partnership management. And, and, and so it, we haven't focused on it very much. We don't invest into it very well. It, we don't, we see a lot of investments early and late stage and forget the middle and then wonder why did we didn't make it. Um, and, and we all, so um, our um, so, so with that the reality, the interesting thing is is there's suddenly and not so suddenly, but in the last decade, there's now been a lot more conversation. I mean, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals alone, are forcing more. If we're going to really make this stuff happen, which is going to be very hard, but how do we? We have to scale this stuff up, and we can't leave things in the lab or on the drawing table or just in one or two pilots. So, so to do that, we're seeing a lot of investors, donors, and investors uh, change their investment model to say. Um, uh, you know, instead of just doing a few pilots, we're going to give big, but we want to see the whole thing solved in a way. Um, and, and so we're seeing evidence and sort of a timing of all the investments that went into early stage stuff. Now we're hitting this next stage and people are saying, well, wait, we've got to fund that. We got to commit to it. So I'm excited to see that finally beginning to happen. And I, and the reason I write about it as a trend is I, first, it is clearly a trend, but secondly, it's a space that a lot of practical activists can work. And, and it's a space that needs accountants and it's a space that needs, you know, uh, 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 you know, program managers and project managers and marketers and people that, that are sort of sometimes struggling to find their role in all of this. And so, um, so I've written that as one of the critical places to, that we need to spend more time, that the next decade of practical activism should find more opportunity there. And actually it will eventually be very powerful in changing the world if we can, and we've seen some things happen. I mean, you know, and COVID is its own story, but how quickly, you know, we, I hope we learn from some of the lessons we've created. Now we have to address the inequities that we've seen in, in, in the vaccines, but we've done this remarkable job of not only in getting the vaccines developed, but getting them up to where they're getting delivered. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story and, and obviously done in a time of acute emergency, but what can we learn about scaling and from that, that we can apply to things in the future? I absolutely love the book and I'm so happy to have a copy of the book up for grabs for anybody who signs up to the innovation show.io newsletter, and you will be in a chance to win that book. Steve, I finished the, the, show off and with a quote that I love from the book. There were so many that I could have chosen from in your book. And I'm going to finish on that. But before I do, I just want to 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 place this idea with you that for you to finish today's show with your call for action from from you from Steve directly. But before I go there, Steve, where can people find you? It's Steve at stevebdavis.com is my email. I'm also uh, can be contacted through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or Stanford. Um, and uh, and I actually have a website that's coming up at stevebdavis.com um, that we'll launch in the next month. Um, but happy to, to learn more or talk to folks. And of course, my book is available on the usual suspects, all the major retailers.
I'm I'm gonna close from my side with this end quote that I love, and then I'll let you close today's show. I love this one, Steve. And there was so many I had to choose between them. The question I am asked more often than any other is how I remain optimistic in the face of so much suffering. The work itself provides my answer. In fact, despite some terrifying headlines, there has never been a better time, a time of greater health and prosperity in human history. The past four decades have proven the cooperation between government, business and the social sector can shrink poverty rates that once looked intractable and eliminate diseases that seemed undefeatable. There is no reason we can't do the same with present-day ills, including climate change, biosecurity threats, and widening economic inequality. Absolutely love that, Steve, as a way to finish. What about you? What's your final message for our audience? First of all, thanks for listening and engaging. And then second, you know, I, I really hope that people find a pathway uh, if they're interested, to both optimism uh, about the world. I'm not, na- not naive optimism, but practical optimism, but also practical activism, that you don't have to have a full-time job in the sector. You don't have to be, you know, this brilliant social entrepreneur. You don't have to, you know, be the, the, the champion volunteer mom. All of that's great. We have those people, but the world has always changed mainly by people taking small steps, working in small communities, working on small issues. And, and that's really important too. So I just encourage everybody to find that piece of themselves to, to, um, where they can feel good about the difference they can make and we can all make a difference. But thank you very much. Author of Undercurrents, channeling outrage to spark practical activism, Steve Davis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.